Good morning. It's great to see you here in our early service. Thank you for coming out this morning. I want to add to our prayer over our students and our teachers. And if you're a, a teacher here this morning and you teach in the public school system in particular, uh, I want to thank you for uh, certainly working in a hostile environment and uh, for being able to invest in the lives of those children. I know, I mean, I don't know personally because I don't, I've never taught in the school system, um, and, you know, in the K through 12th grade, but uh, I know and I see the news and I see the way things are going. And so God bless you for uh, enduring and, and uh, staying in there. And uh, you might not think so sometimes, but you make a difference in those children's lives and you do by just you know, showing them the love of Christ and uh, ministering to them. And, um, and, I, and I think the policy still is if they ask, you can tell them. So if they ask you why, then you can share with them. So uh, I pray God will continue to bless you as you do that. Take your Bibles this morning and go to Hebrews chapter 2. We're in a series on, uh, of sermons on Sunday mornings in the book of Hebrews. And um, you say, Pastor, how do you figure out these series that we're going to go through? Well, when I finish one, I start looking around for another one in the Bible. And I go back and I, I see how long it's been since we've studied through a book or studied a, a topic. And we hadn't been in Hebrews since 2013. And so uh, I thought it would be wonderful to go. And this is a wonderful book, by the way, uh, so rich in, in what it teaches us. Uh, as we move into chapter 2 of this book, um, you will remember that this book is written to Hebrews, the title. It's written to Jews, not just Jews in general, but to Jews who have been saved by faith in Jesus. And so this writer is encouraging those Christian Jews. He's encouraging them in their face in their faith. And, and they would have had a particular challenge that probably other people wouldn't have. Gentiles who were saved, these Jews were so steeped in the law and steeped in Judaism and steeped in their practices that, that they actually had a hard time letting go of one and then just fully understanding the sufficiency of Christ. And that's what the writer was in this whole book is telling them. He's telling them, look, you don't, you don't have to hang on to the law. In the New Testament period, in the first hundred years or so, there were Judaizers. And these Judaizers would say, well, no, you can be saved, but you've got to mix law with grace. You have to also obey the law. And, of course, you don't have to do that at all because Jesus is sufficient. And so <clears throat> you'll remember in chapter 1, the writer really focused on the fact that Jesus alone is sufficient. That when you trust Jesus, you're saved. You don't need anything else. You don't need to hold on to the law. You don't have to have religious practices to be saved. Uh, you don't need those things. Those traditions won't save you. Just Jesus. And he pointed out two very important things in chapter 1 that, that we'll just summarize very quickly because they're applicable to chapter 2. First of all, he said to them that in Jesus Christ, God has been fully revealed. Throughout the Old Testament, God revealed himself, but not completely. The whole plan wasn't revealed. But the writer said in chapter 1, uh, that Jesus is a full revelation. Let me remind you, the first two verses of chapter 1 say this, God who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days, in the dispensation of the church, in the final era, if you will, before the rapture, in these last days has spoken to us in his son or by his son. And then he goes on to say who has, he has appointed heir of all things and through whom also the, he made the worlds. The fullness of the revelation of God is seen in Jesus Christ. 
today, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know all about God that he wants you to know. He has fully revealed himself. I made a list when I was studying this. I got to thinking, well, what is it that we understand about God through Jesus? And we could, we could do the whole sermon around this list, but I'll restrain myself. But I just want to give you a list, and you can go home and, and, and further elaborate on these if you will. Number one, in Jesus Christ, we have the full revelation of the love of God. In the Old Testament, it talked about God's love, but you didn't see it like you see it in Jesus. Because in the law, there was exactness. But in Jesus Christ, we have the full manifestation of the love of God. In Jesus Christ, we have the full manifestation of the mercy and grace of God. There was mercy and grace in the Old Testament. The law, you bring a sacrifice, your sin's forgiven, but you had to do a lot of stuff. You had to bring the animal, and you had to get, sacrifice and burn it, and, and all this stuff, and through the priest. In Jesus, we have mercy and grace before the asking. We just come to Jesus and confess our sin and ask him to forgive us, and he forgives us. So in Jesus, we have the full manifestation of the mercy and grace of God. In Jesus, we have the full manifestation of the peace of God. People in the world want peace. All they need to do is meet Jesus. Amen. Jesus is, is the peace giver. He's the one who brings peace to the troubled soul, to the troubled heart. He gives us peace when he forgives our sin and removes our, the dominion of sin over us and sets us free. So he's, he's the fullness of the revelation of God's peace. He's the full, in Jesus, he's the full revelation of the holiness of God. We saw in Jesus not only his holiness, but his righteousness. Jesus lived a sinless and perfect life on this earth and manifested for us what it looks like to be perfectly holy. He's also the full manifestation of the justice of God. You say, well, you know, Jesus gives forgiveness and grace and mercy. Yeah, but the justice of God is seen in that the, the wrath of God the Father was poured out on Jesus on the cross to pay for our sin. You understand this. God can't just sweep sin under the rug and let us in the back door of heaven because he's just and he's holy and somebody had to pay for it. And Jesus is the full manifestation of that. Here's the rest of the list. And again, we take a lot of time. He's the full manifestation of the hope of God. Let me tell you something. People who live in the world today without Jesus Christ have no hope. There are hopes in money and things and stuff. And, but you know what? They're going to grow older. And they're going to face death. And they're going to face death with uncertainty. What happens to me when I die? Jesus is the only one who got the answer to that question. He's the only one who has the right answer to that question. So he's the, he's the hope. He's the salvation of God manifest to man. Jesus said, I'm the way, truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's the manifestation of God's salvation. He's the full manifestation of the eternal plan of God, the coming kingdom of God, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the power of God to eradicate sin. The list could be longer, but I stopped there. Jesus is the full and complete manifestation of God to us. So the writer said to those Jewish Christians, look, you don't need anything else. You don't need to go back to the law. You turn all that stuff loose because Jesus is the full fulfillment of all that you need to know. And then secondly, to bolster that truth, he said Jesus is superior to everything you ever knew in the past. And, he, and in chapter 1 he used angels because angels were held in such high esteem. He said Jesus is superior to the angels. Now the reason I review that from chapter 1 is the first verse of chapter 2 is directly connected to what he just said in chapter 1. So look at verse 1 of chapter 2, and it's a warning. And the title of our study this morning is A Warning to Christians. A Warning to Christians. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, 
We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Now the word therefore, you always want to ask yourself, what is therefore? And what it does is it connects, it obviously says that what I'm about to say is connected to the truth of what I just said. It's a building a case. Because Jesus is the full revelation of God, because he's superior to everything you know, therefore, this is true. Or therefore, this is applicable to your life. Secondly, not only do we see the word therefore, which means it's connected to the complete revelation of God and the superiority of Jesus, we see the personal pronoun we. That's important because the writer is including himself with the readers. He's saying, therefore, we know. Now, what's he saying? This warning that I'm, about to, that I'm about to give you applies to me and you because we're saved. And what it tells us is that he's writing this to Christians. Now, that's important. It's important to know that because if you read this and you don't know that he's writing to Christians, you can get off track here. You can, you can make up all kinds of stuff. But we don't make up stuff about the Bible, do we? We let it say what it says. And it says here, therefore, we meaning he's writing to Christians. That means if you're saved this morning, you really ought to pay attention right here. You always ought to pay attention to the Word of God, but if he's writing specifically to us about our Christianity, we really ought to pay attention. And so he includes himself and said, this is important for us who are saved. Now what's the warning? Look at verse 1 again. Therefore we Christians, we who are saved, must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. This is a great verse. I mean, this is really a good verse. So I hope you like it as much as I do. He said, we must give earnest heed. Prosecco is the word. It means we must pay attention. You say, well, I pay attention. No, you don't understand. We must pay attention to the things that we've heard. You say, what things that we've heard? What he just said in chapter one. Pay attention to the fact that Jesus is the full manifestation of God. Take heed to the fact that there's no one greater than him. There's no peer. There's no, there's no close second. He's God. He said, pay attention to that. Hold, listen, the definition doesn't mean just to pay attention. In one definition, it means to hold the mind or ear towards something. Don't be distracted. Make, make understanding and growing in our faith that thing which is important in our lives. Here's what the writer's saying. We go from saving faith, we take heed of what, we've heard, of what we've heard, and our faith goes from faith to faith, as Paul would say in Romans 1. We go from saving faith to more faith to more faith to more understanding to more growth. And what he's really talking about here is spiritual maturity. Take heed. Pay attention that you meditate on. And think about the truths that you understood when you were saved so that you can grow in your faith. Understand the truth of the gospel. Understand it more and more so that it has more reality in your life and more living out in your life. Yesterday was August 13th, 2022. You know how I know that? Because my wife told me. No, you know why I know that? It was my anniversary. Not marriage, when I got saved. Do you realize I've been saved 50 years? Man, when I thought about that yesterday, well, yeah, amen, thank God. I've been saved 50 years. Some of the young people are going, man, you're old, yeah. But 50 years ain't nothing to eternity, is it? So I'm just getting started. 
But here's the point of what he's saying here. The day I got saved, I can remember it as if it was yesterday. Teacher said we were sinners. And the Holy Spirit poked me in the chest and said, that's you, big boy. I was a little boy at the time, but said, so that's you. And I knew it. I knew I was. You say, how are you know you're a sinner at 11 years old? Oh, you didn't know me when I was 11. And uh, she said, Jesus died for you on the cross, and you can be saved if you'll confess your sin and ask him, and you can go to heaven. She said, you want that? And I said, I want that. So I believed the gospel, that's faith, and I prayed and asked God to forgive me and save me. Not 11 years old, that was my faith. And it's saving faith. Because God doesn't say you've got to have this much faith or that much faith. you just got to have faith and believe him and trust him. But over the next 50 years, what a shame it would have been if I didn't give heed to the things that I've heard and my faith was no different than 50 years ago that I'm saved, but I don't know anything about anything about the truth of the gospel and what it means in life and that Jesus is greater than all things. Because all of that, we could spend the morning talking about all that, all that, that has application to life and how we ought to live. If Jesus is greater than all and he's God, then how should I live? Like he's Lord. Well, that didn't just happen overnight. You have to learn that. You have, to, you have to grow in your faith, right? And so what the writer is saying is don't, don't be content to these Jewish Christians that you've trusted Jesus and now you're saved. Turn loose of the law. Turn loose of all that stuff that you've been holding on to that's holding you back and concentrate and give heed to the things that you've heard and grow in your faith. Understand more about the faith by which you believed and you were saved. Understand more about how great Jesus is and how do we do that in this book. Read it and study it and ponder it and meditate on it and pray over it. And you will be amazed at how giving heed to the word will lead to spiritual maturity. And that's what he's saying to these Christians. I need you to, to grow in your faith. There's a danger that you will stay and remain babes in Christ. It's been said many times that, that sometimes a pastor spends all his time dealing with babes spiritually and wiping noses and, and keeping people, you know, trying to keep it in order spiritually because they never grow in their faith. Now, I don't think we have that problem here at this church because you are students of the Bible. I might say you can't come here and not be a student of the Bible because this is all we do is read the Bible and study it. But the fact is there are a lot of Christians who never read the Bible. They don't pick it up. They don't pray. They don't heed the things that they've heard, and that's what the writer is giving us a warning. Listen, the Word of God leads to spiritual maturity. It leads to equipping so that we can live and walk in this life like God's called us to walk. That's it. And the writer said, give heed. You know why, listen, you know why he's being so adamant about it to these Christians? Over in chapter 5, and we're going to get there, listen to what he says in chapter 5, verse 12. For though by this time you are to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Man, he's scolding them. You guys are still wearing spiritual diapers. You ought to be out of that now. You ought to not be drinking milk, but you ought to be eating, eating the hard stuff. You ought to be chewing on the doctrine. You ought to be working on it. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. 
This is those who by reason the use of their senses exercise in discerning both good and evil. You want to know how to live a right life? Know the word of God. You want to recognize right from wrong? Know the word of God. You want to recognize when something is not right? Know the word of God. And that's what he's saying. Take heed. Now what's the danger if we don't do that? This is even, this is part and parcel, two sides of the, of the same glove. If we don't take heed, there's a danger, and he gives it to them right here. There is a danger that we will drift away. Drift away. That's another interesting word, perero. It doesn't mean lose your salvation. It means exactly what it means. It means to drift away. In fact, the definition means a gradual, almost imperceptible movement away from a point. It means if we don't spend time confirming and heeding what we know, and focusing on it and not being distracted by the world, there is the very real danger that we will drift away from our mooring, we'll drift away from the truth of God's word, and we'll be overcome with everything else in the world there is. This word is often used in nautical terms. And if you read commentaries, that's the first thing it'll tell you. Oh, this means a ship that missed its port. Well, it's a little more than that, so let me help you. What it means is that a ship and the, and the bridge crew is going into port, and they know where they're going. Christians know where we're going. But the, the crew on the bridge gets distracted, and they're not paying attention, and they're not taking into account the winds and the tide and the, and the currents, and they're not paying attention, and maybe they're goofing off, and maybe they're enjoying the Whatever, they get distracted, and they're not heeding the things that they know. And the next thing, they're off course. And in most ports, I can tell you from being in the Navy over 20 years, there's a channel where the water's deep enough to go and everything else is dangerous. Rocks and sand and dirt. And in the Navy, they have no sense of humor if you run one of their ships into the ground. You get fired. That's about, there is no, if a captain runs his ship aground, he's fired. They, don't have, they have an inquiry. He's removed from the ship immediately. They put a new guy on there and say, okay, you're next. Don't run it into the dirt, okay? So when you're going into port, there's a channel, you do a sea and anchor detail, you go over everything you're supposed to do so that we don't run into the dirt, because ships don't do in the dirt very well, and you stay in the middle of the channel and you go in. And what this word means, to drift away, the word there in the Greek means to not pay attention, and you don't even know you're in danger till you hit the rocks. In other words, it's a, a gradual erring from the truth. Why? Because we're not paying heed. We're not paying attention. Let me give you a, a spiritual application to this and an illustration. Spiritually, <clears throat> most Christians that I know would not purposely just openly rebel against God and do something crazy. Most Christians I know have a healthy conviction about sin and they want to live for Jesus and they want to do right. But what he's saying here is this. If we're not giving heed and, and centering our mind on the Word of God and keeping our focus on spiritual things, that the world will so infiltrate our life that we'll begin to drift. And we'll drift into those places where we thought we would never go. We'll drift in those areas where we never thought we would do, and then suddenly there's ruin. We're on the rocks and there's shipwreck. I'm going to describe a scenario that I've seen play out in real life, and it's sad, and I've seen it more than once. And I'll, and I'll use a male 
protagonist here, just I could do it with, with female, but I'll use male. There's a Christian man. He's faithful, he's in church, and his, you know, his family. And then he, he does what this writer gives us warning to. He doesn't heed the things that he knows, and he begins to let them slip. He doesn't read his Bible as much as he used to. Maybe instead of reading his Bible, he's engaged in other things. Nothing wrong with other things, but the writer says, man, we need to heed what we know. And then maybe church attendance begins to slip. Maybe prayer time begins to slip a little bit. What's happening? A, a gradual, almost imperceptible drift from a point where we ought to be. And at work, there's a, you know, a workmate, a woman, and they suddenly become chummy. And they spend too much time talking to one another. Maybe they start talking about personal things. And by the way, guys, you have no business discussing personal matters with anybody but your wife. And maybe he starts sharing personal stuff with her, and she starts sharing personal stuff with him. And suddenly they're texting and chatting with one another and emailing. And then you know how this goes. The drift continues into destruction because now they're standing too close to one another. And guys, another word of caution. No woman ought to be in your personal space except your wife. I mean, nobody should be inside your personal bubble except your wife. And so now at work, they stand a little too close to one another. Then the, then the hand on the shoulders and the hand on the back and the touching of the arm, you've seen it. And all the little things where they're becoming just too chummy with one another. And then all of a sudden, there's an adulterous affair. Now, if you'd asked that guy six months before that, would you ever cheat on your wife? He just said, why would you ever say that? No, that's the worst thing in the world. I would never do that and destroy my family. And yet, because he didn't pay heed to be where he was supposed to be and do what he was supposed to be doing, where is he at now? Shipwrecked. Her family, his family. And I tell that story because I know a man that did it. I had to sit with him and the weeping and the pain and destroyed two families. He's still saved. He didn't lose his salvation over it. He confessed, asked God to forgive him, continued on with life, but he never recovered from the mess now, how did it happen? Right here. This is a warning. Right here. Don't drift from where we ought to be. You say, well, Pastor, boy, that scares me. It ought to. Because you know what? We're all susceptible to it. Nobody's above it. You get out of this book, and you get away from the Lord, and you stop praying, and you stop making God a priority, the world will fill the void. The world will fill the void with stuff. And the next thing you know, you're off course, you run aground. That's exactly what the, the writer's saying. I like what you said about putting on the armor of God. Man, you've got to suit up every day. Don't put on part of the armor. Don't grab a sword and a helmet and leave the shield. No, you need the shield. You need the breastplate. You need shoes. You need the whole thing. How you do that? You heed what you know. Spend time in God's Word. Now, after that warning which is pretty sobering, isn't it? He said, he said, what is the danger of neglect? He goes further. Look at verses 2 and 3. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us 
by those who heard him. What he does in these two verses is he argues from the lesser to the greater. It's a literary practice you've seen many times. And he begins with the law. He said, if the word spoken through angels, now what did he say in the last chapter? The angels had part in giving the law. The angels were, were revered by the Jews as being great. He said, if the law, whom the angels, according to Galatians 3.19, had a part in giving in the revelation, if that law was exact, and it was, in other words, there was no bend in the law. There was no give in the law. Sometimes there was no grace in the law. There was no mercy. He said, if that was the case, then how much more important is the gospel? How much more important is what we know brought by Jesus Christ? Let me say a word about the law. You say, well, the law was exact. Yeah, it was. Let me give you an example. In Leviticus 24, there was a man working. Leviticus 24, beginning of verse 10. You can go and read the story. And he cursed. I hear people curse every day. It's a, it's a nasty habit among our society. Really demonstrates many people's limited ability to speak, but that's another thing. If that's as large as your vocabulary is, you get a problem. Anyway, this guy was working in Leviticus, and he cursed. And not only did he curse, but he used God's name, and he blasphemed God. And some people heard him. And he did it more than once. So they went to Moses, and they said, hey, you know, Jimmy Joe over there, he's, I don't think any Jews were named Jimmy Joe, but you get it. He, he, you know, he, he's cussing, and he's blaspheming the name of God. And so they arrested the guy. Because the law said you can't blaspheme the name of God. So they arrested him. Put him in ward, the Bible says. And they went to Moses and said, what do we do with him? It's good. I don't think it's on. Sorry. Wasn't me, I don't think. Anyway, they go to Moses and they say, this guy's cussing, what do we do with him? So they arrested him. And then Moses went to God. Because remember, they just got the law, this stuff's brand new. So Moses don't want to make a mistake. He goes to God and says, God, what do we do with this guy? He is, he's blaspheming your name. You know what God told him to do? Take him outside the camp. The people who heard him cuss put their hands on his head to give testimony that they heard him do it. And the rest of you stone him to death. The law is exact, wasn't it? There's another time God said, don't do any work on Sunday, on Sabbath day, not Sunday, Sabbath day. This guy's out on the Sabbath day picking up firewood. Same thing. They arrest him, put him in ward. They go to Moses and say, this guy's picking up firewood on Sabbath day. What do we do with him? They went and asked God. God said, take him outside of camp and stone him to death. They said, man, that's, that's hard. Yeah. You know what it represents? The absolute unaltering holiness and righteousness of God. Now, what he's saying is this. If the law was so exact and those who wouldn't pay attention to it received a just recompense, the punishment for whatever the law said, how much more shall those who ignore the gospel receive just recompense? That's almost scary, isn't it? Now, remember this. He's writing... To Christians, 
And you say, well, that's scary. So what's the recompense? It doesn't say here. But I can tell you this, it doesn't mean you lose your salvation. But I will tell you this. The Bible says that when we as Christians stand before Jesus one day at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, we can lose our rewards and receive a just recompense for ignoring the gospel, not giving heed, not growing in our faith. And I'll tell you another thing. Many Christians today forfeit blessings in this life by choosing to walk in the world instead of walk with Jesus. The world can never bring to our lives what Jesus desires to give us. So we have to heed the things we've heard. If the law was without alteration, so the gospel, and we can lose those benefits if we forfeit them. Now look at verse 4 as we finish up. The message of the gospel was confirmed, and he says in verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And what the writer says to these Christian Jews, he says, look, God did not leave himself without a witness to the validity of what you know about Jesus Christ and about the gospel. Number one, he said there are the testimony of eyewitnesses. They wrote the book. God used them to write the New Testament. These apostles and these men and these women who were around Jesus, their stories, their life events are in the Bible. They're there for us to read, particularly in the book of Acts. We can read about the founding of the church and God and the things he did in the church. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we can read about the life of Jesus and what he did. So there are eyewitnesses who give an account of all that's proclaimed of Jesus Christ. And you know what we find when we look at those witnesses? They all validate the truth of the Gospel. Secondly, he said it's confirmed by signs, wonders, and miracles. Confirmed by signs, wonders, and miracles. Jesus did many miracles when he walked around. In the first century, the apostles did miracles of healing. Jesus raised the dead. He healed the lame. He healed lepers. He calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Created food in his hands and fed 5,000. Jesus demonstrated his power, signs, and miracles and wonders. That thing which is supernatural to confirm the gospel. Now, understand this. Listen very carefully. Miracles and signs and wonders won't lead people to get saved. The writer said right here, they're a confirmation of the gospel, which is how people get saved. Confirmation of them. I don't want to get a long discussion about this, but people say, well, you know, does God do miracles today? Yeah, all the time. All the time. God's sovereign. He does, he does things outside the ordinary all the time, outside of nature and outside of natural ability. When you pray for somebody and God heals them, that's an answer prayer. God did a miracle. Now, God might have used the doctors or God might have miraculously just healed them. I've told you a story many times about praying for a man that was going to be unplugged and die. We prayed over him, anointed him with oil, and the next day the guy goes home. Nobody will write about that in the paper, but it's a miracle. God did it. God raised the guy up. God answers prayer, does miracles every day. But miracles, supernatural things, are not what God designed to draw people to be saved. How many times have you heard people say, well, if God had just, man, this kills me. Some lost person say, well, if God had just revealed himself and do something supernatural, I'd believe him. My man, are you blind? Jesus came. He did all kinds of stuff. He died on a cross to save your soul. What else do you want him to do? 
I mean, what, what else do you want? What else do you want to see? So signs and wonders and miracles. And then finally, the greatest, listen to me, you can have all the miracles you want, healings and God, wonderful, God does that great. You know the greatest proof of the truth of the gospel, particularly on an individual level, is the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. The power of the Holy Spirit in your life. God living in you is the ongoing testimony the validity of the gospel and that there's nobody that compares to Jesus. The Holy Spirit bears testimony to my heart every day about my salvation, every day about my relationship with him, and every day as I grow in spiritual gifts and in serving him. Let me close with this. This message that the writer gave to the Hebrews here is to Christians. We've already pointed that out. But I believe the principle here is true for lost people as well in this, in this vein. Though it's not written to lost men and women, let me give this word of warning from this passage. If God has gone to such great lengths to reveal himself, and he has, Jesus Christ come, died on the cross, rose again, ascended back to heaven, we have the Bible, we have history, we have church history, we have everything, even the Holy Spirit who gives testimony to the validity of who Jesus is and that he died for us on the cross. If God went to that extent to reveal himself to us and you're here today or you're watching online and you've never been saved, you've never come to Christ and confessed your sin and asked him to save you, how do you think you will escape the judgment of God when the time comes? And the answer is you will not. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says, and as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation as that? And the answer is you will not. If you've never been saved, if you've never come to Christ by faith, you need to be saved today. You need to trust him and ask him to save you. Begin by believing him and asking him to save your soul today. If you're a Christian and you're here today, man or woman, young person, boy or girl, can I encourage you to do what the writer said? Give heed, give attention, pay attention. Bend your mind and your heart and your ear toward the thing that you know so that you don't drift, so that you don't slip away in the shipwreck. And that's a danger for all of us. If you're here today or you've heard online and you're not sure you're saved, would you pray to receive Christ right now? You say, how do I do it, Pastor? Pray to God. Ask him to forgive your sin. Confess to him that you know you're a sinner. Ask him to forgive you. Ask Jesus to save your soul. God will save you right now. You say, how do you know that? Because he said so. And I've been there. I know exactly what it feels like to be saved. If you'll get saved today, Right now, watching this video, if you'll stop and pray and ask Jesus to save you, you'll be eternally glad that you did. Trust me, you will be eternally glad you did. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Help us, Lord, to give heed to what we've understood. God, help us to understand more as we study and read. Lord, grow us in our faith. Let us be spiritually mature. God, that our eyes are fastened on you and not the things of this world. Father, if there's a man or a woman, young person, boy or girl, under the hearing of your word right now, and Lord, they've never been saved. They don't know what's going to happen when they die. God, they can know right now if they'll pray and ask for your forgiveness. God, I 
pray you would convict them, touch them, draw them. The Lord, they would cry out to you. Bless this invitation time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing. If I can help you or answer questions, we won't embarrass you. You come on the first verse. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you.